everyone. I'm Chris Lesniak. And I'm Rob Meyer, and this is the Debate Math Podcast. Hey, listeners, before we start today, our exclusive sponsor, Hand to Mind, is supporting our ability to bring you today's podcast. For over 50 years, Hand to Mind has been filling gaps in core curriculum and improving learning outcomes with supplemental hands on resources in math literacy, and science. Hand to Mind is committed to providing high quality resources and tools that are effective, flexible, and easy to use. We know that multi-sensory hands-on instruction in math is critical to helping students build meaningful connections and make sense of abstract concepts. Visit handtomind.com. That's the word hand, the number two, the word mind.com to learn more about tools and resources to enhance your math instruction. So you may have heard it by a couple of different names, I do, we do, you do, or gradual release of responsibility. Some people are for it, some are against it. We see it debated about on social media and in person, and we thought it would be a great topic for debate. So today, we have two teams of two debating the resolution, I do, we do, you do, must go. And here debating for that resolution, that we should stop using this gradual release. We have two wonderful educators. And first up is a math educator, a dope human being doing dope things, who recently completed her second master's in ed leadership at Columbia University, Crystal Watson. Hello, Crystal. Hey, good evening, everyone. How are you? Glad to have you here. Doing good. Can you tell our listeners a little a bit about you and where you are and what your current role is? Absolutely. I am in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I work for Cincinnati Public Schools at this moment as an instructional partner. So I partner with teachers to find the most high leverage practices in order to reach historically marginalized students in the math classroom throughout our district. Very good. And arguing along with Crystal is your favorite math educator's favorite educator, Dr. Chris Childs. Hello, Dr. Childs. Hey, welcome. I'm glad to be on this podcast. This is your boy, Dr. Crystal J. Childs. As Chris stated, your favorite educator, favorite educator. In this case, would be your favorite math educator, favorite math educator. Whoever your favorite educator is, guess what? I'm their favorite educator. Excited to be on this podcast and bring you greetings from the wonderful state of Florida. If this is debate math, we got to talk about all the debates that are happening in Florida as it relates to what is math, what is mathematics. We are the hotbed for all things mathematics. What do I do in the math education field? I do a little bit of everything from a variety of entities, and I always do a quick disclaimer. All thoughts and opinions are my own, so folks want to go tattletale. This is what Dr. Child said on the Debate Math Podcast. Go back and tattletale, because guess what? This is an independent podcast. My thoughts are my own, but I'm going to give it to you like I always give it to every audience that I speak to, R-A-W, and it's going to be raw and unapologetic as we have a nice conversation. I'm ready. Awesome. Thank you. And for both of you, the question we, we ask all of our guests, and I'll start with you, Crystal, is when did math first become controversial to you? Wow. Uh, well, I would probably say it became most controversial to me when I started teaching. Uh, I am a career changer. And once I switched into the education field and I started to see the stark inequities right in my own district, really, uh, between 
historically marginalized and excluded populations and the dominant culture population, I I knew that mathematics was the the catalyst for for really making opportunities available to everyone. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And Dr. Childs, when did math first become controversial to you? Uh, first, math became controversial to me when I first realized as I was going through my schooling that mathematics originated in Africa. I always thought mathematics originated in Greece because all of my math teachers talk about all these great Greek philosophers. When, then, when I found out most of them actually studied in ancient Africa, and we can say study, but a lot of them stole things from Africa. That's when it became controversial to me because I wondered why would someone not tell me the true origins of where the beautiful subject started? And as we go through this debate, I really want to get into what is mathematics because if we take it back to the originators of mathematics, it'll help us bring a framework for why it is so controversial now and why people have a misunderstanding of what is mathematics, how do we do mathematics, and most importantly, what is the purpose of mathematics? Excellent. Thank you both. And now we have a team of two arguing against the resolution. And first up is a returning guest, veteran teacher, best-selling author, international speaker on how the brain learns, and a 98 Degrees fan, uh, Lisa McConchie. <laughs> oh, goodness. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back. Um, I am coming to you from sunny San Diego, California. And yeah, I am a veteran teacher. I've taught everything from kindergarten through the university pre-service teaching level. And um, what I spend most of my time doing now is consulting with schools all over the world in helping them to transform their pedagogy to be more aligned with how the brain naturally learns to really create a student-centered um, educational experience for our students. Thank you. And arguing along uh, with her is a regional math coordinator who works on public math and math anywhere, Molly Daly. Hi, Molly. Hi, Rob. Excited to be here today. Yes, I'm a regional math coordinator in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, the best thing about, about my job is I get to have lots of creative space to work in the community doing math and invite more people into math that maybe haven't seen themselves there before. So it's not as often sunny here, Liesl, in terms of weather, but it is a great um, place in terms of inv invitational mathematics going on. Great, and now the question we ask all of our guests, uh, I'm gonna start with you, Liesl. When did math first become controversial with you? Uh, well, I've shared in previous episodes some other times. So another time that math became controversial to me most recently was when I joined Twitter. I'm pretty new to the Twitter sphere. And I, when I joined, like, holy cow, there are some hot takes going on out there. And I just, it's, it's really controversial for me. And for me, it's um, the internal struggle is knowing when to engage in the um, controversy and when is it time to like step back and not engage. And it's been, um, it's been quite the internal debate for me as to find my place and how to use my voice to serve and when is it time to sit back and to listen and to learn and, and engage in different ways. And Molly, when did math first become controversial to you? Well, I'm going to start by saying not early enough, because I think if there was more controversy in math when I was younger, less one right answer, one right way, I would have maybe 
maybe a little more ambiguity, I would have been um, more drawn in. Um, so I just want to share about a lovely controversy that arose in a first grade classroom I was working in recently. Um, and the debate started when somebody recorded the statement four equals four. And this, uh, we got in a lively conversation about whether that was okay to write uh, the numeral four, the equal sign, and then uh, followed by the numeral four again. And there was lots of debate about conventions and meaning and with some students claiming something was missing, you had to at least write an operation plus or minus zero. Um, and others were claiming that, well, it means that four is the same as four, so the statement was true. Um, and I just think these moments of controversy can be engaging and empowering for students, um, even if it's uncomfortable for the teacher to have things go unresolved for a little bit. Um, so I'm just um, thinking of that moment as um, moments of controversy is something that I wish was invited in earlier for me. Look at that, debate math in first grade. <laughs> awesome, well, welcome to all four of you. I'm so excited for this. And with that, let's get into the debate. We begin with opening statements from each of our speakers. You each have two minutes to present your arguments. And we are starting with Crystal Watson, arguing for the resolution that I do, we do, you do, must go. Crystal, you're up first, and your time begins now. Ethnomathematician Ron Eglash said it best. When Europeans first came to Africa, they considered the architecture very disorganized and primitive. It never occurred to them that the Africans might, have used, might be using a form of mathematics that they hadn't discovered yet. The colonization of mathematics, teaching, and learning has catapulted us into sit and get via I tell you what and how to learn, followed by I will then test you on just that. Our claim is the gradual release model should not be used in classrooms and should be inverted in order to allow sense-making first. We're churning out regurgitators of foreign math strategies and arbitrary facts. We must completely rethink and redo teaching mathematics and the gradual release model. I have three warrants for this. The first, it positions the teacher as the keeper of the knowledge and the power holder in the classroom. Secondly, it limits the opportunity for young people to tap into their own ways of knowing and learning, hence denying that they have any experience and existence outside of our classrooms. Third, the mere definition is teacher responsibility, releasing it slowly, correct? So inverting that would be student responsibility. We must decenter Western ways of knowing that are centered in dominant culture in order to allow youth to connect and love mathematics, unless we're not teaching historically marginalized students. And we're just looking for those test scores from our dominant culture. Thank you. And now we will hear from the opposing side with Molly Daly. Molly, you have two minutes and your time will begin now. All right, so have you ever walked in on a conversation only to hear someone disparaging a good friend? Well, that is how I feel each time I scroll through Twitter only to see people I respect 
limiting the gradual release of responsibility models, sometimes framed as two with and by, or more unfortunately, I do, we do, you do. I'm here today to speak in support of gradual release, the most misrepresented framework in the math education world. Um, my claim is that this is a valuable model to describe the relationship between teacher and student responsibility in the classroom, something we all need to be thinking about. The first representations of gradual release in the 80s and 90s illuminated the inversely proportional relationship between teacher and student responsibility. The more a teacher is showing or doing, the less responsibility a student will have. And conversely, when a student's working independently, a teacher might observe or ask questions, but the student is holding most of the responsibility for completing the task. This early research in the area of literacy situated demonstration, shared and guided instruction in an independent practice across a continuum of decreasing teacher scaffolding. Unfortunately, some of the most widely disseminated versions of this model recast this fluid continuum as a rigid sequence of steps applied always in the same order. I do, then we do, then you do across each lesson, regardless of which students are showing they know and need. I reject this framing of the gradual release model and the regretful language and misleading graphics associated with it. Um, in the original descriptions of gradual release, teachers are determining their level of support in response to what they observe students doing. And the model is described as nimble with varying degrees of support flexibly applied across situations and adjusted for each student. This model brings awareness to the interdependence of teachers and their students in the classroom. And when used with intention and applied flexibly, flexibly and responsibly in the, responsibly in the classroom, um, as was the original intent, it's an effective pedagogy and a useful tool for teacher reflection. Wonderful. Thank you. And then arguing again for the statement that I do, we do, you do, must go is Dr. Childs. And Dr. Childs, you have two minutes and your time begins now. I do, we do, you do, your mama do, your cousin do, everybody do. I think it's a whole bunch of doo-doo and it needs to be thrown into the trash. If you know me, you know I think the gradual release or responsibility sucks. I come in and say it at the very forefront. Then you probably like, Dr. Child, what would you, why would you say this sucks as a researcher, as a scholar, et cetera, et cetera? Because one of the things I like to do as a scholar is I like to take us on a historical journey and a historical narrative as our, as our debaters just did a moment ago. In the opening, you notice I took it all the way back to Africa. I don't have to go back that far with the gradual release of responsibility because first I ask folks in every audience, where does it come from? Because when I say do you use it, everyone's hands goes up, they raise their hands high and they raise them and, and wave them like they just, just don't care. But when I ask them, you know, cool, you use it, but where did it come from? They say, oh, it came from Fisher and Frey. I say, oh, it came from Fisher and Frey. Do you know Fisher and Frey designed the gradual release of responsibility as a model to teach children to read and write. But me as a researcher, I go even further back. Where did Fisher and Frey get it from? Because there is nothing new under the sun in education. And Fisher and Frey actually got it from Rosenstein in 1979. And guess what? Why did Rosenstein create this direct instruction model? For reading comprehension. So over time, some educator went to a conference, saw this in the ELA side of the house, the reading side of the house, and they said, oh my gosh, I do, we do, you do. It's simple, it's easy, we can start with the I do. Then the children can get involved and then they can work on their own. And oh my gosh, let's try this for math. But here's the thing, folks, we have, we've tried it in math. As my colleague Chris has pointed out, 
all the onus is on the teacher, but what about the children? Are we thinking about them first? I know a lot of folks are going to say, you know, we're going to flip it around. We're going to start with the children first. But at some point, I do, you do, we do. It gets to the student, this teacher-centered model. At the end of the day, how are we focusing on the children, not these educators in this model, in this piece? So I do, we do, you do. It's a bunch of doo-doo. Thank you, Dr. Childs. And lastly, we will hear uh, from the opposing sign again with Lisa McConchie. Liesl, you have two minutes and your time begins now. All right. When you think of the I do, we do, you do model, what is the image that comes to your mind? For many people, it is this, this linear partition three-step process of learning. So what, what do you think of when you think of the I do portion? What do you see? Is it a, a boring teacher, teacher-centered, um, giving some type of direct instruction, type, some type of lecture? And then what about for the we do portion? Is it students who are just copying down um, some worked examples that the teacher is doing on the board? And what comes to mind when you think of the you do model? Are you seeing students sitting in their desk uh, silently doing one through 59 odd? These mental images that we have perpetuated could not be further from the intentions of the creators of the gradual release of responsibility model when they first scribbled them on a napkin at a cafe one afternoon. My claim is that I do, we do, you do does not need to go. What needs to go is the narrative that we've created around gradual release and direct instruction. It's us, not the pedagogical theory that needs to change. It's not a bad model. It's a misunderstood model. The original creator of the gradual release responsibility model, David Pearson, was once asked how much explicit instruction should a teacher provide? His response, as little as possible. Does that match the narrative you've been holding in your mind about this model? Eliminating I do, we do, you do hurts students who can benefit from a more scaffolded approach to learning. Direct instruction has value at certain times in certain contexts. We need to be asking the questions when, for whom. Perhaps it's our multi-language learners, students who have passed math trauma or math anxiety, whose ability to engage in productive struggle has literally been beaten out of them, our most marginalized students. Eliminating this model can further marginalize those who are already struggling to get a foothold in a mathematical environment. Those of us who have been blessed with a voice in the math ed world must be careful with how we use the space we've been given. We can't poo-poo on a pedagogy founded on sound research because it's not trendy or because it's often misused. If it's being misused, let's fix it. If it's being overused, let's learn when to best use it. And that's just slightly over time. Perfect. All right. Thank you, all four of you. Wow, you are so impassioned. So much to say. I've already learned a whole lot. Um, you all referenced, or most of you referenced, uh, the Fisher and Fry model and and talked about, I think both sides, you agree there's misinterpretation happening with it and, and how um, people kind of picture it being used in the classroom. We have some historical perspectives from Crystal and Dr. Childs. Um, I, uh, my mind is just spinning with so many things. So I guess let's just start like a starting teacher. I'll start with that. What advice would you give to someone who is starting out teaching math, who has probably experienced lots of I do, you, we do, you do uh, some versions of that in their student experience, right? And they're becoming a teacher. 
people are telling them you should never do the gradual release model. So, so what, what advice can you give to them? How can they start? What, what is like some best first steps and what, how can they help students best um, for someone who is just brand new to this field? And maybe can we start with either Crystal or Dr. Child on your side? So I was that student and I love that Liesl brought up math anxiety, right? Um, that was the way that I was taught. And I still struggle with some math anxiety, even though I know I'm capable, right? I often remember walking into classrooms and I don't remember but one math teacher that I ever had until college. And her name was Miss Lindley. I remember walking into so many math classrooms and being told to sit down and listen, take notes, and then practice, and then turn around and, and be tested. Um, I was never, not once until college, asked to walk into a classroom as a marginalized student asked to walk into a classroom, sit down and tell my experience and how I do math at home, how I do math in my culture, um, how math is used in my home where my mother did not finish high school. I was to sit and listen because the teacher was to teach me. She had nothing to learn from me. So as a new teacher, um, if I were to give any advice to new teachers. I know that we hear it all the time, but getting to know our students is number one, right? And how do you get to know students when you ask them to walk into a classroom, sit down, listen to what you have to give them, and then regurgitate what, they, what you've given them? It's very hard, and I'm speaking from experience. This is not about, you know, people that I've never met or, um, you know, from word of mouth. This is from the, the, the child's mouth. I wish I would have had someone that let me show you what I knew before they showed me so that their strategies weren't stuck in my mind that were so foreign to me. So I, I, I am, I'm really, really hoping that you are listening to this marginalized voice here um, because that was my math experience. And maybe Molly or Lisa, from your side, what advice would you give to someone just starting out in teaching? I would say, be careful of the false narrative that the gradual release of responsibility model begins with the teacher. Because it doesn't. It begins with observing the student and what they already know and being able to, um, to look, to listen, to hear, to formatively assess what a student already knows, so you know where in the model to enter. This is the false interpretation that's been adopted in the education world and been perpetuated oftentimes because of a visual model, that it begins with the I do or with the teacher having full responsibility. And that is, that is so inaccurate. Teachers can enter at any point in that model, but we have to first observe what students already know to know how much, where, it's a sliding scale of student responsibility and teacher responsibility. That's what I would share with a new teacher. So it sounds like both sides are saying, don't go in, just be an instruct instruction. I do, we do, you do every day, right? But just the argument of like where and when maybe to, to use it. But I, I have a question that I want to ask the, the group. 
Sure. In the I do, you do, we do model, are you saying a teacher can enter it at any point, meaning they don't have to do all three in a given classroom experience? Or do they, uh, I just want to get clear on that part. Are you saying you, can, you only have to do the you do and maybe the, the we do, just so I can be clear? Yeah, and actually, I'm really interested to talk to you later, Dr. Childs, too, um, about where your original source that you found, but um, as I learned about it from the literacy vantage point, um, kind of 80s and 90s, there's some kind of parallel research going on. Um, and the ways I learned about it, you know, largely from um, Margaret Mooney and her little green book, Two With and By, if anyone has that. Um, she actually says in there that the teacher chooses whether to enter a demonstration or by letting the students be independent or with a shared experience, just kind of as a starting point and then sees what the students do and then um, adjusts from there. So it's it's very centered around what um, students are doing. The teacher's um, adjusting their level of support in response to what the, the, uh, what the students are showing they know and can do. Um, and I think what Crystal's describing is something that would be really familiar to a lot of us too, where um, you know we were just regurgitating, we were walking in, the teacher was doing all the outputs and we were just kind of taking in um, what the teacher thought was important for that course. Um, and this model was almost designed in response to that in a way, um, like uh, the idea that through all stages, the, the teacher can constantly observe and engage with students and um, you know, kind of always be mindful of what they're capable of. And you're really doing, um, I think, as Liesl said, the least amount you can do to help students progress to the next level. All right, so let's let's pivot to. Uh, I'm going to go to Dr. Childs and, and uh, Crystal next. Um, so, with all the unfinished learning that's happened over the last couple of years, and, and teachers seem to be trying to, I, they always say to me like, "I'm trying to catch up and trying to help these students as much as I can." Um, how are we able to continue uh, teaching on grade level content without possibly explicitly teaching uh, prerequisite skills or modeling concepts first? So I think we can look at multifaceted. And one thing I do want to change our framework from an unfinished learning piece to an unfinished teaching component, because because when we say unfinished learning, we're putting the onus back on the children. We need to put the onus back on the system, and the system needs to adjust to what has happened over the past couple of years due to the pandemic and different things that have happened. And when we put the onus back on the system of unfinished teaching, that's not saying teachers is just on you. It's on the entire education space to do what we need to do to make sure children receive what they need to receive. But then we also need to think through a couple of frames. Children start in pre-K, some places kindergarten, all the way through 12th grade. Unless a child is in 11th or 12th grade, they have several years to quote unquote, get caught up. We can't keep looking at this as I have to do everything in one year. If we have a high quality educational system, we understand that over the course of time, children will get what they need by the time they exit our system. That's if we have a high quality educational system. If we don't, we're so in the mix of, there, these children are coming to us, every year we say children have gaps, every stinking year, but the system does not do anything to change the calendar, anything to change is how we structure what is happening for children. 
Back to the original question now, what can we do in this flawed system that we have? Number one, children should be always received grade level instruction, period. I do not care where you think they belong on the continuum, grade level instruction. Why? If they do not receive grade level instruction in their grade level, when do they ever receive if we're doing pullouts and everything else? Then what we need to do based upon the gaps that they may have, then we can fill in those gaps along the way through interventions outside of the core instructional time. But are we thinking of it through that level or just what children do not bring into the educational system? Are we using an asset-based lens based upon the things they bring into the system and building upon those things through a child-centered approach? Or are we so focused on this weak media narrative that's out there, unfinished teaching, um, I mean, unfinished learning, kids don't have this, they don't have this. What do they bring into the educational environment? And so to, to come back to you too, um, so if we, and this is, I hear this a lot, this is why I'm coming to you from a, a teacher's point of view, from things that has been said to me. Um, so if we're teaching, let's say, um, you know, seventh grade, we're teaching like ratios, proportional relationships, right? And uh, we know that some prerequisite skills for students to have that on grade level content would be things like, uh, you know, understanding of fractions, um, you know, foundational multiplication skills, things like that. Um, are we to not try to explicitly teach that before we get to that? Like, how would that look? I mean, outside of like doing like interventions prior, like as a prerequisite going into, into like the on grade level ratios, proportional relationships. And again, this is for Dr. Childs and Crystal. I got this one. Um, so we've been doing a lot of work in Cincinnati around this. And I, you know, intervention is played out straight up. There is no reason why we should have to pull students to intervene on anything. Um, if we're supporting our teachers in uh, their professional development, we're supporting them in staying up to date on the, the latest and greatest research based practices and high leverage uh, stra instructional strategies, they should be able to do things like stations, learning stations, small groups, things like that. So for instance, I'll give you a real life example because I'm about living in the real life. I'm not about like, you know, reaching back to the 1950s to figure out who said what on or whatever. So for me, just yesterday, if I am in a seventh grade classroom and I'm supporting a teacher, teaching ratios and proportions. And you're right, they do need to have some sort of understanding about fractions, right? If I have a, a, a classroom of 25 students, 25 students don't need a lesson on fractions. Let's say I'm walking around and this is why another reason we wanna start with we do, because we are walking around, we're watching students, they're grappling with a task, I noticed four students, let's just say, four students that just have no idea how to get started. And I have a conversation with them. And I say, how, young people, why are we having such a problem? And they tell me that they don't, they just have not been able to grasp fractions. Guess what I do? I kind of huddle them up and we have a quick five minute reteach. And then I say, okay, try again, have them try again. And that's my scaffold. I don't need to stop 25 students in class and have a whole mini lesson for 15, 20 minutes, or I don't need to pull them out of class so that they're not able to hear people around them grappling with the task, right? Every student needs a champion and the champion can't always be the teacher. It can't always be an adult. It, it needs to be peers. 
Um, so again, another reason why it's really important to put high level, high quality mathematical tasks in front of students so that they can show us what they know before we go in assuming anything. I was just going to um, just point out at this time that what Crystal described there was a perfect representation of what I think I have to show my little green book. I know you can't see it if you're listening, but um, a perfect representation of how gradual release is described. Um, it's She's describing a situation where maybe some students need a short demonstration and then more time being independent and then maybe um, she'll check back in. So it's applied flexibly across groups of students, across individual students, across the lesson. Um, it's not a linear set of events that, and, and as Crystal is saying, not everybody needs that same piece. So I'm not going to stop all the learning and try and, you know, reteach um, everyone the same thing or all of last year or the year before. Instead, I'm just going to um, adjust as needed in response to what the students are doing. But only after the students have been able to make some meaning, right? So we're not starting off with this is a strategy that you can use. We're going to make meaning. And even when I'm pulling that small group, I'm not showing them a strategy. I am ha I'm helping them to tap into prior learning because it's there. It just might be deeper down than what, what they can recall at that moment. So I want to be clear that, yeah, there isn't a right starting point. I'm with you. I'm agree with everything that Crystal and Molly both said. That was a perfect example of it. And and if the students do have it with them, then then yes, then yeah. Our job is to do as little as possible and to help ask the great questions and to create the space for them to to show and to manifest what they already know. But it is. Um, it, that's just not always the case. Like there is, there are moments and they are less than most of us assume where students don't have the scaffolding because we are introducing a brand new topic. And so I want to be clear that there are times when moments of direct instruction have value. And, and actually, Lisa, you're setting me up for my, my question I, I had for you and Molly. What are times when it is good to have some kind of gradual release or the I do, we do, you do, or some version of that? Or like, is it a by grade level or by subject or like topic wise? Do you have some advice or leadership uh, ideas on that? I think maybe, and I'm going to ask Lisa, or maybe I'll invite all of you to help uh, me think about this part because I don't have a perfect example in mind. But I think one thing that's helpful is to kind of step out of teaching out of the classroom for a moment when you think about gradual release, because it's really um, this idea that we don't want to take away um, any of the work that kids can do uh, or a learner can do it applies across all situations. And I think about it as a parent. Um, I think about it as, you know, a coach uh, in my life. So, you know, what are these? Um, there, of course, are moments where uh, someone will be practicing something the wrong way. I mean, if you go back to tying your shoes or brushing your teeth, there's maybe like lots of demonstration at first. Um, and then it kind of, uh, you know, ebbs over time. Or um, there might be times where you step back into demonstrating when you realize, oh, you know, some there's a little gap here and it's going to be easier if I, I show you um, instead of um, just trying to have you intuit it. I don't know if Lisa, if you have a good... Um, non-school example, maybe? Yeah, I think in the math world, I think some of the most appropriate times to, I think what we're talking about is 
when the teacher steps in for a moment into that space of high levels of teacher responsibility. And I think the most appropriate times to do that is when you are introducing a novel topic that students do not have any scaffolding around. I mean, I taught kindergarten and first grade for the first time last year, and there are a lot of concepts that I was introducing for the first time. We can play and explore in lots of different ways, uh, like fractions, but when it comes time to fraction notation, how you actually write a fraction, there is an agreed upon way that in the math world that we have decided how you write a fraction with a numerator and denominator and this horizontal line in between. Like that is a moment when I would step in to this um, direct instruction model. And same thing with a high school example, when I was teaching high school math for so many years, when we get to introducing trig functions, uh, they've never heard of sine, cosine, or tangent. Like we can explore all we want, but at some point I need to step in and say, and this is what we call it. But let's jump into this kindergarten and first grade piece, because I do have a, you may hear in the background, a first grader running through my home, upcoming second grader. Um, but when they entered school, they came in with the different knowledge and skills. And the key is what I've done with them, what their teachers have done with them, is build upon the knowledge and skills that they bring into the classroom structure at the first and kindergarten level, now in the second grade level. If we look at the work of Thomas Carpenter in 1989 and cognitively guided instruction, the whole focus of their work is looking at what do children bring into the classroom setting? How do we build upon it? As mathematicians, our job is to provide rich problem-solving opportunities for children that have multiple entry points, and then also at the younger ages, making sure they can use manipulative and different representations of the mathematics for them to engage within it. I have yet to see, and I've had the opportunity to teach children from pre-K all the way through graduate level statistics. And I've always provided all of them rich problem solving tasks and say, hey, explore this task and let them come back with something. And if we think about it through the lens of building upon what children bring into the classroom, if we look at the work of Smith and Stein, the five practices for orchestrating a mathematical discussion, in their work, it's all about how do we build upon what the children in the classroom bring to us. And through that model, if we're building upon what they bring to us, we look at each child from what they bring and call upon them in a specific order to build upon this entire experience. That's why we can give all children grade level content, because every child has an entry point into the task and every child can be engaged and involved. If a child is at the first grade level, all they can do is point to the numbers. Guess what? That is their entry point. If one child can only count to five, let them do their counting to five. If another child can actually do the operation, guess what? That is their entry point. If another child wants to draw a picture, another child wants to demonstrate with block, all of those are entry points that we as educators build upon and facilitate a rich discussion. And it doesn't require me to go to my first grade child's classroom and say, hey, one plus one is two. Say it with me. One plus one is two. Let's do a song and dance. Now, memorize it. Do your fat families. I can just say, here's a rich story problem with some action within it. Go work it out on your own and come back and talk to me. If I make it engaging and build upon the experiences they bring into it and the context that they relate to. But if I want to teach it the old school way and, you know, do my time table test, my addition test, yeah, I can try that crap and see if it works. No, because the data doesn't support it. Yeah, no one's, no one's suggesting that, Dr. Childs. But so my follow-up question to you is, are you saying that there is never a time when a teacher needs to step in and and share, uh, you know, whether it's a mathematical language or it's a framework or a notation system that we use in mathematics. Because everything that you everything that you just shared is a beautiful example of 
again, observing where the student is. And then what Molly and I are saying is that there are sometimes moments when a teacher needs to step in to offer um, more information. Well, and, and Dr. Charles, real, sorry, real quick, because Lisa kind of uh, took part of the question I was going to ask you as well, because it's the, same, it's the same thing. Like, what about like sentence stems? Like, is that appropriate for like younger children who are learning to use mathematical language and things like that? Um, so, again, going to Dr. Child, everything she said, and also like what about sentence stems as well? The key is, are we building upon what they bring into the classroom? For example, some folks like the front level vocabulary. How about we use the vocabulary that the children bring into the room? And then if they're not saying the correct mathematical term, guess what? If Rob says blank word, I can then say, you know, Rob, I love that thinking that you're bringing in. The correct term is this. I still am building upon his thinking. And then everyone says when I go into classrooms, and I've done this across the country, I just give children tasks and let them work on it. Chris, this is my all sorts of label group. What if they don't come up with anything? I can easily, on the board, write out an equation, write out an expression, step away from the expression and say, I saw someone do this. You all tell me what happened with this. I did Now, have I possibly seen their problem? May or may not? Probably not. But guess what? The onus is back on the children to do the sense making and for us to have a conversation as opposed to me saying, I did it this way. Because when they leave the classroom with Dr. Child writing something on the board saying, this is what you need, they go home and tell their family members, Dr. Child's taught me this. Dr. Child's taught me this. I, my job is not to teach you anything. My job is to build upon this genius level, genius level potential that you already have within you and then build upon what your classmates are bringing to this space. Does it take a little bit longer? Yes. But when they leave my classroom, they leave with a thought of, this came from us, y'all. Dr. Child's, I don't even know why we pay you. Uh, if I could now, add to that, yeah, please really do, quickly. Please do. So I feel like there's there's definitely some there's some mincing of words, right? During the in this debate, I we have to approach this concept as it is understood across our nation, and our our nation across our nation understands this concept as I'm standing up at the board, I'm teaching you a strategy, and I can guarantee you this because I see. Tons of teachers a day, hundreds a year, thousands per couple of years. I lead PDs. I write all of those things, right? I can promise you that the majority, over the majority of our teachers believe that the gradual release model starts with them at the board. And nine times out of 10, they never get away from the board. So the point is, I, I, I'm going to go back to intent versus impact. Um, I can't remember who said it over their in, their in their opening, but talking about mental images and the intentions of the writers writing on their napkin. I don't care what the intentions are because the impact is that our students are not getting rich experiences in the math classroom because the intentions of the writers are not being carried on. So then what's next? We're asking to stop worrying about what the intentions were and let's reimagine. Let's do something different because at this point, it's insanity. The numbers look the same across our country for forever. But, for what, forever. If what's, but what if the thing that's different is actually what the model is? Why mm -hmm. won't we challenge the narrative? If it's well, the narrative have, it's have you not. tried that with some teachers? Yes. 
okay, well, then maybe that could be the narrative. You could write can, about it. You can't just say, well, like the narrative is, well, I don't think we can just say like, hey, the narrative is wrong. We just need to accept that that's the narrative. If the narrative, like we can, and this is, this applies to all contexts, right? Not just, we're not talking just about math classes right now, but if the narrative is wrong, we have to challenge the narrative. We can't just erase it and try to like start something new because in the end, it's students that lose, it's students that lose. And that's what we all care about right here is students um, learning and them growing and them developing a healthy math identity. And that can be done with an appropriate use of the gradual release model. If someone wants, and, and this is what happens, like it's, it's the, the capitalism of the math and sphere is that Bruce and Bray came in and decided like, oh, we're going to take this model. We're going to give it its own name so that we can create its own little diagram and we can market it and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, the pedagogy is sound. Let's, let's, ask, let's ask some quick questions because a lot of people in the math ed space use this flawed model. If we, this is yes or no questions. In math, math education, is there an achievement gap? This oh, for yes sure. Or no. Yeah, is but there, listen to how many people are perpetuating the narrative wrong. I'm not doing it. If, in math, math, education, math, math education, is there an opportunity gap? In mathematics education, can I look at a student's identity markers by race, ethnicity, by, dis um, by disability, by language, by socioeconomic status, and predict how they're going to perform in mathematics education? For sure. All of these things are true. Now, back to your piece of in guard regards to, yeah, we have the wrong narrative. At the end of the day, it's not working. We can, and everything has been in this world designed, it can be redesigned. Why are we not thinking through a new lens of a new model that is more inclusive of all children and all identities and as opposed to holding on to a flawed model that's been around since the late 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Now we're in 2022, still fighting for a flawed instructional model. Because the model's not flawed. It's the application and use of the model that's flawed. Well, let me let me pause you there for a second. I, I, I think we're saying similar ideas and just like different interpretation of it. I, I there is uh, talking about this model here and talking about like Crystal had put it really well, like the, the interpretation of it and then the way it's being used is, is, is really the issue at hand. Um, can, can we talk about like, how can we help teachers understand the research or how to apply it well, or what, what is, what is it? how can we help them understand what we, what the four of you really want is really good teaching. And I think your heart and mind are all in the same place on that. Like, how can we help connect teachers to this? Cause it's, it sounds like we have this phrase, I do, we do, you do. It's been like reinterpreted however people want and just passed on in a not productive way. Right. I, th I think that's a place of agreement of all of you. Any, any ideas from either side of how to help connect teachers to the, the true intent and the good and the good pedagogy. I think first teachers have to understand who are the children that are being served before we even jump into any pedagogical model. If we look at this model starting in the 70s, look at the 80s, we look at the children population within our system. It has totally changed. Majority of our students in the U.S. public school system now identifies Black, identifies Hispanic, identifies Latino, identifies Latina, identifies Asian, identifies Pacific Islander, identifies two or more races. Why is that important in describing it before we even get to the model? With those student populations as a whole, and this is a broad statement, they come from collectivist cultures, meaning their sense and abilities that are in their DNA and from their backgrounds and how they view what is mathematics, how it should be instructed, and how not how it should be instructed, how it should be engaged in is totally different from 
this current dominant white dominant narrative in the United States. So as we keep trying to hold up this flawed model, are we thinking about it through the lens of children? Yes, I respect teachers. I love teachers. I fight for teachers. But in the day, it's not about us old folks as teachers. It's about the new population of children and providing them a different experience than we had so they can be better prepared to solve the world's problems. They're not going to get a rural problem that tells them this is a problem. Here's a solution. Take these three steps and go do it. We're getting problems every day that children just need to use their minds that they have that they need to think about, about and build upon. So it's not about how do you do, we do. It's about are we giving children rich problem-solving tasks that they can engage in as opposed to worrying about a flawed narrative. It was interpreted this way. It was made this way. At the end of the day, children are not achieving. So in my opinion, it's time for something new. I agree with everything that you said, Dr. Childs. And I just want to broaden our understanding a little bit about how learning happens. So... What you're talking about, like, you know, drawing upon what students already know, that is, you know, that is like using pre-existing knowledge of what students bring to bring to the classroom. And that is one of four ways that the human brain can actually learn. There's only four ways that the human brain can learn and change and grow in any way. You cannot inject learning through a needle into anyone and they learn that way. You can't lay on top of a textbook and absorb information through osmosis. There's only four known ways that we know of that you can learn anything new. And one of them is exactly what Dr. Charles just said, and that is by using pre-existing input. So let's take a look at like learning that the stove is hot as a simple example, that you can use what you already know to generate new insights so you can say like, hey, I can see that there's gas coming out of the stove right there. I've seen that before. I know that that means fire and fire is hot. And that is using pre-existing or you know, often inquiry-based learning. There's also implicit input. This is the second way the brain can learn something. That's unconscious learning that happens outside of the conscious awareness. I notice people put on hot mitts when they touch the stove. I, this grown-up is doing this. So that must mean that this is hot. Then there's sensory input. This is where manipulatives come into play and they're so critically important. Some type of sensory experience um, or action-based learning. That is, I touch the stove and it is hot, so now I know that it's hot. And the fourth way that the brain can learn some information is through explicit declarative input. And that is someone else tells you, this is a stove, it's hot. Don't touch it, you'll burn yourself. All four of those ways work for the brain to learn anything new. And when we try to pit the four against each other and try to say one is better than the other, students lose because it's not one that's better than the other. It's all about who is the learner, what's the context of this learning experience right now, and what is the best tool to use in this moment for this student. Now, I will say that explicit declarative learning should be used as, le as little as possible. But if we decide that it's just trash and we cut it off, then you're cutting off like a limb to their brain. There's only four ways. If we remove one and say that it's awful, we have just handicapped our learners even more. But who got to define those are the four ways and where did they come from? Uh, I, I study cognitive neuroscience. It's in... And I mean, I, I could show you like the chapter in my book that like outlines it with the references, but it's like, those are, I don't understand the question. So my question is, it goes a little bit deeper, going back to our initial pieces, who got to define those are four pieces based upon what research is it a westernized definition, or are we looking at it through a global lens and how different cultures interact, or are we looking at just through this narrow lens? The reason I asked. Because that's where this whole I do, you do, we do thing came about. 
with the, this debate is who got to define this is the way. There are some cultures that do things totally different. Are they referenced in this research? Or are we totally looking at it through the dominant domain that is here in the United States? It's from what I understand, it's the neurobiology of how the human brain learns new information. And there are um, minimal differences between gender, um, between age, and um, between different neurodivergent um, impacts. I want to jump in because we want to start wrapping up here. And I want to bring Crystal Can I just Mally. say one thing? Go ahead. I before, promise. Before this is the last thing. I just wonder, to piggyback off of what Dr. Childs just asked, there was a time where folks thought our brains were different because we were black. So I'm just wondering if that's the same folks. And I am a science person. I'm mathematical. I'm scientific. But I know that a lot of science comes from white men. And I don't trust it all the time, right? And I like to make sure that I have the tools and the opportunity to test and make sure that something works for people that look like me. Because guess what? If I left it up to them, I wouldn't be able to do anything. Dr. Childs wouldn't be able to do anything, right? Because our brains are different. Our faces are shaped different. Our heads are different. Our cranial impact may be different because we were, we're, we're lesser than, we're inferior. So we've got, that's where Dr. Childs is coming from. He wants to know where does all of this delineate from? And I would like, I would like to know that as well, but I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm done. <laughs> That's okay. I, I just want to end it, uh, end this uh, question around with one more question and, and for all of you jump in at, at any order. Um, so if teachers who have been doing what I, I think all four of you are somewhat against, if they've been teaching the I do, we do, you do kind of strictly as their regular daily routine. And if they want to move into, you know, building off student thinking and, and doing more exploratory ideas, can you give them some advice, some direction, where to go for a resource to get started or an activities uh, site to get started? Like, uh, give, give, help, help nudge them in the right direction. I want to jump in and just there maybe and just say, um, start by watch, take a moment to stand back and watch and see what your students are doing. You don't have to be hyperactive at every single moment. Observing is an act of teaching. I always use the Megan Frankie quote, silence is an underutilized pedagogy. Let's step back and watch what kids are doing before we intervene. Um, but can I, sorry, but can I loop back to your other question too about how do we, because I think there's like an underlying issue that's, and I think that some really important points have been raised about like who gets to decide and how things get popularized. And since I think that um, the intention of this theory has been swept under the rug by, you know, who, like, who knows what forces, um, but then obviously there's some cultural issues there. And I really do think though that like, the connection, I'm wondering if that's kind of a pathway to this idea of how do we help teachers reframe or re-engage with this intention of this model is by um, maybe thinking about learning across cultures or across, because there's in any situation, there's going to be this relationship, whether it's peers or an adult of people with more knowledge and people acquiring knowledge. Um, and I just, that's what this model is about is that relationship. And so I wonder if, um, maybe that's actually a pathway is kind of stepping back and thinking about how, um, different ways of sharing knowledge, um, kind of treat this relationship between the learner and the, um, maybe slightly more knowledgeable person. I think the interpretation that we've been, we've been, 
uh, vacillating between a couple different interpretations. So if I were to speak to the interpretation of this, the teacher-centered interpretation of I do, we do, you do, I actually don't have a great resource to send teachers to because I really don't think that's where the work is. I think the work is personal. I think the teacher-centered um, approach to uh, to centering the, the learning environment around myself as a teacher, I think that comes from a couple different reasons, places. One is from a place of control, is if I, as the teacher, um, feel like I want or need control of this environment, then I'm going to gravitate that towards that. And so that is personal work that I need to do if that is what I'm gravitated towards, um, from gravitating towards that. I think the other reason sometimes that people um, gravitate toward that, and this is more practical, is that sometimes it's practical. It's like we're pressed for time. And this is this an excuse that I hear often is like, we got to get through this content. We got to get kids ready for the state tests. And I do not support this, but it's like, okay, if I just show you how to do it, and then I, we do a couple examples together, then you'll be good to go. And off you go. And the, the mindset is it's a faster approach to get, um, to cram as much knowledge into the brain, um, to get to the state testing timeline. And so I think that's a couple of things that we need to grapple with in the education space as to what, what is it about me if I have that bias to want to maintain control of my learning space, like what, where's that coming from and how can I release some of that? And then what, what can we do to not feel the pressure to cram as much content in for whatever reason, whatever pressures we feel, um, exterior pressures that come from that. And Crystal and Dr. Childs, advice or uh, first steps for teachers? I, I wouldn't veer far from, from Liesl and Molly. Honestly, um, I, I totally agree with the fact that it does depend, right? And the one thing that I would add is I would highly suggest, depending on what your group of students looks like that you're teaching, and it could look different every year, right? Sit and read and listen to those folks that look like your students, that are a part of your students' community. Don't, if you're teaching all Black students and you're reading all white scholars, you're doing it wrong. You're listening to all white scholars, you're doing it wrong. Um, I, I say that a lot within my district where 78% of our students identify as something not white. There's no reason why we should be peddling all white scholars and all white voices. So if you're not learning from folks that are a part of the communities that, that live and breathe and service um, the communities that you serve, then, then you're doing it wrong. That, that's the first step. And I would recommend for new teachers, as we've all mentioned, to get to know the children in which you serve. And if you've noticed throughout this debate, I haven't used the term students, I've used the term children to humanize them. They're babies. I don't care if you're in high school, you're still a baby. That's all high school. And we, when we look at it through a humanizing lens, I love the book, The Impact of Identity in K-8 Mathematics by Julia Gary, Karen Mayfield, Ingram, and Danny Martin. That book is important because regardless of the pedagogical approach, do you understand the children and the unique identities that they bring into the classroom structure that you're willing to build upon? 
or do we continue to paint them as this blank canvas? You know nothing. I need to teach you everything. When you understand the identity of the children, where they come from, who they are, you can create a better experience for them. And an experience rooted and centered around them, not an experience centered around how we grew up, not as the experience centered around the teacher population, not as even the experience centered around the current education center, uh, current education center, um, current educational system. And we create an experience centered around children. Awesome. Thank you all. And that will conclude our question round. We will now end by giving each side two minutes to make their final arguments. We're going to begin first with uh, the four resolution, Dr. Childs. Dr. Childs, go at it. You heard this great debate about I do, we do, you do. But what I noticed during debate, our debaters, they went from the model that everyone knows about, I do, you do, we do. Some people said we flip it, but then they've changed just the quote-unquote intent of the model. And what's unique, how is the intent changing when majority of the teachers are doing it one way? So at some point, something is flawed about the model. And as I told you all in the episode, the model is trash, throw it out. If everything in this space has been designed, guess what? It's time to redesign it. So let me give you some pointers to think about as we wrap up this episode. Number one, thinking about what is the construct of mathematics? Have we really thought about what is mathematics beyond who created it? What is mathematics? The second thing we really need to consider is what is the goal of the classroom mathematics experience? Is the goal for children to regurgitate information or is the goal to prepare children for college, career, and beyond? which is life. We have to understand that mathematics was used to make sense of the world. That was the origin of mathematics. If you don't believe me, I got a great book for you. Oh, I put it off the bookshelf, The Crest of the Peacock, The Non-European Roots of Mathematics. It takes you through every single culture, every single basis of how do we get to here in the understanding of mathematics. When we understand that mathematics was used to make sense of the world, we'll begin to look at mathematics through the lens of how do we use it in this present age to how do I, in my opinion, in Crystal's opinion, I'm saying you too, Crystal, because you're on my team, we believe mathematics needs to be used to get people to stop hating one another based upon their identity. That is our charge in this time in life with all the crap that is going on. And yes, I said crap. If I said doo doo at the beginning, I'm gonna say crap right now. All the crap that is going on in the world what are we using mathematics for? I can give a darn if two plus two equals four, if children do not know how to use that and apply it outside of it. Children do not need saviors, y'all. We're, we're educators. We're not saviors. What they need is anti-racist educators who are willing to provide them the tools for liberation from a white supremacy structure. A lot of folks argue me down every single time. Well, Chris, you're saying get rid of this, do these other things. I ask you a simple question in every education environment I go into. If what you're doing is working, show me the data. In the great words of Jay-Z, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. Do you have the data to support what you're doing? And does the data showcase that every child based upon their identity, whether they're Black, Hispanic, Latino, Latino, Asian, American, Pacific Islander, two or more races, low socioeconomic status, high socioeconomic status, multilingual, students with disabilities. Do you have the data to show me that all those groups are succeeding? You don't. I don't even have to look at your data. I know you don't. So if they're not succeeding and doing better, what are we as adults going to do to improve the mathematics educational system? Adults, what are we going to do? Or are we going to see keep, as young folks say, capping 
But I do, you do, we do. Knowing that crap doesn't work. It's a bunch of doo-doo. And your boy, Dr. Christopher J. Child said it on the Debate Math Podcast with my guys, Chris and Rob. I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to say at my end of y'all, but this is a debate. You can say that kind of stuff. Thank you, Chris, for that, Dr. Childs. Um, okay, and with the final word on the opposing side, uh, one more time, we have Lisa McCunchy. The gradual release of responsibility model is a student-centered approach to teaching and learning. It calls upon educators to see who their students are, what they bring to the table, and what they already understand and adjust accordingly. If a student is struggling, the teacher should step up and offer some support, then step back out. If a student is thriving, back up and give the student more responsibility, more challenge. Too often in education circles, we seek belonging in a certain pedagogical think tank. The pull to like place our flag in a certain philosophy is so strong. I get it. Wanting to belong somewhere is natural. And there are plenty of things where there is a clear right and wrong. But when it comes to certain pedagogical principles that have sound research behind them, the question shouldn't be which camp am I in? Am I in or am I out for or against? It's when is it best to pitch my tent in this camp? With whom, when, in what context, and when is it best for me to pack up my tent and go pitch it over here for a while? It's the art of teaching that helps us to know how to navigate these decisions. It's the relationships we have with our students, knowing who they are. We agree with Dr. Childs and Crystal here that it is dependent on our students and who they are and what they bring that determines where we enter the model, where we exit the model. If we always enter the model, as it is traditionally used, not intended, but as it is traditionally used, if we enter the model with a teacher-centered approach of I do, that is deficit thinking. That is deficit thinking about all of our students, that they don't know anything, and that I am the one who is in the position of power of all knowledge in this classroom environment that I need to teach you things. That is deficit thinking. The way it's being used is wrong, but it doesn't mean the model is wrong. We are calling on educators to engage in productive discourse around these pedagogical theories that people vehemently oppose. So before you jump on social media or stand in front of a conference to bash a certain theory, please go find someone who's a champion of that theory and broaden your understanding. You might not change your mind, that's fine, but hopefully you'll step back from your echo chamber enough to hear the nuanced cries that offer critical insights into the art and science of teaching these children. Okay, thank you all. That concludes our debate. Wow, you've given us so much to think about and had a very uh, passionate debate here. And now it is up to our listeners uh, to take a moment, ponder the arguments. If you're like me, I'm going to have to listen to this a few times uh, and probably go back and uh, read and research. And uh, I found there was a lot that I didn't realize I didn't know from both sides of the argument. So it's up to you to ponder the arguments and consider what resonated with you. And go to our Twitter, at DebateMathPod, to vote for who you think was more convincing in this debate. We will leave it up for one week, and we will tally the results before our next episode. 
I have to give a huge thanks to all four of our guests who were, this is a very passionate debate. We got very in the details and talking about such uh, sensitive issues and things. And you are all so great, so thoughtful, so respectful. I, I, I thank you all for all of your time. And thanks to all those uh, that are listening. We hope you enjoyed and learned so much from this debate. Again, Chris and I definitely have. And don't forget to go out and vote. And as we wrap up, uh, let's start with Lisa. Where can listeners find you? You can find me on most social media channels at Liesl McConchie um, or on my website, LieselMcConchie.com or anywhere around the world working with schools who want to create a more student-centered approach based on the science of how the brain actually learns. And Molly, where can listeners find you? I am on Twitter at mdaily15. And uh, you can also find me uh, at mathanywhere.org or public-math.org and on any given weekend doing math with strangers in a park somewhere. And Crystal, where can our listeners find you? I'm not that hard to find. Twitter, underscore Crystal M. Watson. My website, crystalmwatson.com. That's pretty much it. Um, catch me, Catch me in the wind. <laughs> here there and everywhere and then dr childs where can everybody find you dr christopher j childs you can find me on all social media platforms at drk childs at drk childs you can find me also on my website www.christopherchilds.com and you can bring all the smoke you want to my social media platforms but understand i come back with just as much smoke fire brimstone and everything else when you go high or when you go low, I go even lower than you're going to go in these fights. Because at the end of the day, my job is to make sure every child receives a high-quality mathematics education experience. And I will fight until the end of death until every child, regardless of the identity, receives that experience. Until then, we're going to have problems in this educational space. My newest initiative, raising up 10,000 anti-racist math educators that are going to get engaged in this work around the world of using mathematics as a catalyst for change. Want to learn more about incorporating debate activities into your math classroom? Go to lesniak.com podcast to sign up for my mailing list and get your first set of example debate activities you could use with your students today. Go to lesniak.com podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us with comments and questions on debatemath.com or follow us on Twitter at debatemathpod and follow along with hashtag debatemathpod. Rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. Your feedback is super important to us. Well, that's all from us. Looking forward to debating with you more next episode. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.